Let me just remind you of um, something of the vision. I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. Verse 4, I asked the angel who was speaking to me, What are these, my Lord? The angel answered me, These are the four spirits from heaven, going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, reiterate what uh, Tony prayed just a moment ago, that you would open our eyes to see the reality behind these uh, extraordinary visions. Thank you for the way that you've helped us up to now. Thank you uh, uh, for the message that we have heard, which we have seen is the gospel, the good news. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, stay with us and help us to be people who see you and your great message for us with clarity. And then, Lord, to be people who live it. Humble our hearts, Lord. Open our eyes. And let us see you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A friend of mine dropped me a note um, this week. <clears throat> he mentioned, among other things, how um, by one of those extraordinary uh, quirks of God's providence, he ended up being invited to preach at the wedding of um, the television um, comedian Sally Phillips. Let me just show you a picture of her so that you might recognize her even if you don't know the name. Um, I'd actually heard that Sally Phillips had become uh, a Christian a little while ago, and um, this revelation that I was indirectly... Are you going to get that sorted? It seems to have gone rather funny, Ted. That I was indirectly, at least, connected with um, such a famous person made me um, um, decide to, to try and find out how she was converted. Her testimony is very interesting. When she was a student at, at Oxford, just down the road, she was very anti-Christian. And especially she was angry at how she felt targeted by Christians. In 1992, she actually was involved in a, in a blasphemous review on the Edinburgh Fringe called Jesus Too, subtitled, He's Back from the Dead, He's Cross, He's Everywhere, and He Wants Your Soul. She said, we had a picture of Jesus on the front holding a machine gun. We attracted loads of vicars. They got up some kind of movement. She said, that probably started the process. After that, she started researching for a, a sitcom on witches. What she read and what she experienced actually began to deeply disturb her. She started actually to believe that there were real forces of evil out there in the world. She started having nightmares. She said, I started dreaming that Satan was found and free. 
I'd wake up and feel an incredible evil in the room. And so from mocking the uh, spiritual realities of good and evil, she started actually to take them very seriously. And after a period of uh, struggle, she finally became a Christian, she says, at 3 a.m. on the 17th of July, 1996, in Hammersmith Shopping Centre. She still describes herself as massively unsorted, but she says she is a different person now. And I started wondering how many people in this world, actually in this city even, are not Christians, partly at least, because they've never really appreciated the dreadful reality of evil in the world. If evil is illusory, you see, the message of the Bible is meaningless. If evil is trivial, then the message of the Bible sounds terribly melodramatic. If evil is easily changed, as uh, Graham said, just by um, people being a little bit better, then the portrayal of uh, God's, the cost that God had to pay to resolve it, the portrayal of the reality and horror of God's final wrath against evil would all seem just like so much um, uh, draconian, harsh, melodramatic rubbish. If evil is just a fact of life that we can't get rid of and we'd better start living, uh, living with, then the hope that the Bible portrays of the new heaven and the new earth that we were singing about just a moment ago is just hopelessly idealistic tosh, isn't it? In fact, if, uh, as Sally Phillips felt, that evil wasn't a very powerful present reality, then it would be quite reasonable to lampoon Christianity, to ridicule it. But you see, evil is real. Evil is terrible. Evil is intractable. The uh, picture that the Bible paints, when we see that, no longer seems quite so melodramatic. See, if we cease to accept evil as just the way of the world and start, as Sally Phillips did, to experience it as something alien that has intruded into our beautiful world, something deeply dark and dangerous, then actually we can start to recognize what the Bible is talking about. In reality, you see, evil is that. Evil seems to have infected the whole globe like, uh, like the fallout from some massive ancient nuclear explosion. The cancers that uh, result from it are still appearing in what seems like an endless procession of misery. 
Just when one disease has been cured or, or has burnt itself out, another more malignant than the first seems to arise by just a mysterious, spontaneous mutation. You know, the, the misery of child labor in Victorian Britain is gone now, but up comes the misery of children in broken homes today. The fear of nuclear war that once was so dominant is now replaced by the fear of global terrorism. The 19th century miseries of sickness and poverty have disappeared. But what about the 21st century miseries of uh, loneliness and depression? Everywhere, in every age, people with sensitive hearts cry out, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And yet, again, again, after generation after generation, evil seems to be a reality, a dominant reality, an oppressive reality, an ineradicable reality, which damages and destroys millions upon millions of lives. But most people, it has to be said, very rarely step back from uh, their day-to-day -day individual miseries and see that big picture. It's just too big, too awesome, too overwhelming for us to dare to think about it. And yet without that big picture, we can make no sense of what happens in our lives and in our world. Zechariah, you see, has been giving us that big picture. And he's used images precisely because he, he doesn't want us to get bogged down with the details. He wants us to, to get a bird's eye, vivid view of what this world is really like and how God interacts it. We have, with it, we, we have called actually this series the, uh, in Zechariah the gospel, the good news according to Zechariah, precisely because he's giving massive good news about how God is going to deal with evil in this world. On the, on the surface of it, uh, images of horsemen and horns and flying scrolls that we've, we've seen seem, seem to be the more fantastic, strange, weird bits of the Bible. But actually, I want to suggest to you that as we've seen what those stand for, we have seen that they show us a reality that, that actually only great works of art can do. A reality that goes beyond just simple propositions. To helping us to see with our hearts, so to speak, what is going on in this world. What God's doing. Let me remind you of, of that, as I did last week. But um, if we are left with nothing else from our study of these early chapters of, Ze of Zechariah. I want you to see the message that unfolds with these visions. So it's uh, without apology that I remind you again how that message has been unfolding. Remember it unfolded in the particular context of Israel under the evil dominant power of Darius, the king of Babylon. But then we saw the first vision that Zechariah has. 
a vision of horses hidden quietly in a ravine. Like Darius's mounted spies, they were ready to go out and spy over the whole world. The message was, God is watching. God watches over these powers, no matter how powerful they may be, see, may be and God watches over our lives. Nothing that happens in this world is beyond the eye of God. The second uh, uh, vision, remember, was of four horns and four uh, craftsmen. Um, uh, the, the four horns were overthrown by the craftsmen. The message there was God rules over great powers represented by the horns. And sometimes he may overthrow those powers with possibly a more positive power. But, this is the punchline, God is not going to use those great powers to achieve his good purposes in his world. The United Nations may take over from the League of Nations, but the United Nations is not going to eradicate evil. The Empire of the United States may take over from the Empire of the United Kingdom, but it will not eradicate evil from this world. Vision 3. Here we're getting closer to it. A man with a measuring line who is urgently told not to measure out Jerusalem because, in fact, the community that God is going to build in his world is going to be a community without walls because walls restrict uh, the, the growth of God's community. And walls give God's community a false sense of security. No, God's community is going to be global, far beyond any individual institution, and God's community is going to be protected by him personally. I myself will be a wall around Jerusalem, he says. Visions 4 and 5 take us to the heart of God's intention as he plans to eradicate evil from the world. The fourth vision is of a high priest, one of God's people, but dressed in shabby robes because he too is infected by evil. But God takes those robes off him and gives him robes of splendor. Yes, God is going to begin the eradication of evil, by forgiving his people, by winning their forgiveness, by not counting their sins against them. You saw how that anticipates the church, God's church, a community of forgiven people, reclothed people. Vision 5 was a lampstand. The great message there, uh, the other side of this, uh, this central pair, is that God is going to work not by the power of those horns, not by the power of those craftsmen, but by his spirit. Not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. 
God's Spirit will shine like that lampstand throughout the world and change people's hearts. Vision 6. Last week, we saw it. A flying scroll which begins to address the the ongoing problem that there is of evil amongst God's people. The first part of uh, that that message is, is very serious. That flying scroll functions as a curse. A curse that will come upon people who, though they may appear to be amongst God's people, are nevertheless not devoted to him. But there's another form that evil takes amongst God's people. Vision 7, the basket of wickedness, the the innocent uh, item of kitchen furniture that nevertheless holds wickedness in it, just as all Christians feel in their lives. That evil still resides in their lives and could get out and overwhelm them. No, says God, the way I will deal with my people who love me, who nevertheless are still troubled by sin, is that I will bear that sin away. The basket is taken away by angels with wings, do you remember, of covenant love. And so we come to vision eight. Vision eight, in many ways, mirrors the very first vision. Do you remember those horses quietly hidden up amongst the myrtle trees in the little ravine? Then we said, they looked ominous. You couldn't quite see how many there were, what they were going to do. In the first vision, they were only reporting, remember? Well, vision 8 shows them in very different form. Now they are hitched up to chariots. Now they are going to war. In fact, vision 8 is here to assure us that God's victory finally will be complete over all evil in the whole of his creation. That's what we're going to see then in Zechariah chapter 6. God's final victory. First of all, we need to uh, um, uh, look at these chariots. They uh, come from God's impenetrable stronghold. Chapter 6, verse 1. I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains. Mountains of bronze. Here are, are, are four chariots and four horses, all of them powerful, coming out from between these two mountains of bronze. No longer the little wooded ravine. This is now from some stronghold defended by uh, 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 mountains that are absolutely indestructible. They're coming from God's secure place. 
to do their work. They represent, we are told, the, the, the four winds of the sky, or, uh, or perhaps as the NIV rightly translates it, the four spirits of heaven. They don't represent the wind that, uh, uh, that, that, that blows on the, around the four points of the compass. They represent the spirit who blows in exactly the same way. The spirit of heaven who goes throughout the whole world like the wind goes throughout the whole world. It's the same word in the original language, wind or spirit. They go then to the whole world. I can show you that. In verses 5 to 7. Actually straining, champing at the bit. But they will not go until the divine word says so. Look at verse 7. When the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the world. And he said, go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. In Zechariah's uh, first uh, vision, the, the nations were said to be at rest. Do you remember that? That was the report that came back with the horses. Secure in their godlessness. And in that original vision, God was actually very angry with the nations. But you see, finally, these, uh, these chariots will do their terrible work of destroying those nations secure in their godliness. And then it won't be the nations that are at rest. It will be God who is at rest. Look at verse 8. And he called to me, Look, those going towards the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. Because God's enemies are conquered. God's enemies are defeated. Evil is gone. See, if Zechariah was simply describing a crude military victory of Babylon, which uh, lay in the, in the north, we would rightly, I think, be horrified because we know that such victories do not bring ultimate justice. But he has already established that in that second vision of the four horns and the four uh, craftsmen. He's not describing just a crude, earthly victory here. He is describing a victory which will truly bring about a new heaven and a new earth where there is no evil, where there is no sin, where God's Spirit is finally fully at rest. Those horses again appear in the book of Revelation that final book of the Bible, which ends with the vision of God's entirely new creation, where there is no mourning or crying, nor even any death. See, if we've never caught a glimpse of the reality of evil in our world, then we won't actually be very excited about this. 
we will see it as a melodramatic. We'll see it as no more exciting than those dreadful um, synthetic fantasies that Disney uh, World put out again and again, year after year. But you see, if like Sally Phillips, we've started to get intimations, we've started to see the dreadful reality that evil erupts in this world and damages and destroys people for generation after generation and century after century amongst millions of people, then we will be excited as no other vision could excite us by this great promise that God will one day destroy all evil and defeat it. We live in a beautiful world. We live in a world that shouts out to be perfect. We sense that the, 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 the bad things, the evil things that come into our world are, are terrible intrusions that were not intended to be here. Well, here's the final chapter in the story of God dealing with those. One day there will be no more. One day the world will be as God intended it to be. Meantime, God, in his innermost being, is, is straining like those horses, champing at the bit like those horses, rearing on powerful, indomitable haunches, waiting for the moment when his power can be let loose in this world to destroy these things that damage his people and his creation whom he so loves. And it only awaits that final word that God has on his lips and has not yet said. Go. In the New Testament, Peter clearly explains to us why he hasn't done that yet. In, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. This is the promise. He's not slow in keeping that promise. As some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He wants as many people as possible to hear this central gospel message that Zechariah has been showing us of forgiveness and repentance by the power of God's Spirit. He wants us to turn to him. But he will not wait forever. One day God will say, go to those four chariots. If that day comes, or the day of our death comes, before we have said, God, please forgive me. God, please clothe me like you clothed that high priest. God, please work in me by your Holy Spirit and let the light of your presence shine in my life like that lampstand. 
If that day comes before we have said that, then the Bible is quite clear, we will be on the wrong side of God's wrath. Because we will be bound up with that whole web of wickedness. We cannot say we have no part in it. But if we embrace that hope, then we are secure. We are on the side of those whom God has forgiven. And we will be populating heaven. To uh, finish off these uh, visions then, God tells Zechariah and uh, his people to enact a particular symbolic act. It's recorded from verses 9 to 15. Let me read verses 10 and 11. Take silver and gold from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown to be set on the head of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak. It's a, um, a picture of a crowning of the high priest. There's a great deal about, uh, about the, that, that whole passage, which is mysterious. We don't know who these people with the funny names are. Perhaps that's on purpose. Perhaps they stand just as ordinary representatives who have been in exile. It's even more tantalizing when um, you see from the, from the footnotes that their names are changed in verse 14, the second time they're mentioned. Actually, in the, in the second time they're mentioned, two of them at least, their names can be translated strength and grace. Is it that they are given strength and grace through this ceremony? Is it that they will need strength and grace for this uh, uh, to come true? We just don't know. But the central message is clear. There, here is a high priest who is also king. The one whose uh, job then was to stand alongside people, the high priest, the one whose job was to mediate God's forgiveness to, to, to people, the one who was just an ordinary one from amongst the people, is crowned as king, a priest king. Verse 13, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. He will be clothed with majesty and will rule, sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. And there will be harmony between the two, we are told. There's actually a, a, a rather strange construction in, in, uh, in verse 12, which the NIV translates, here is the man whose name is the branch. But it, but it could equally be translated, there is a man whose name is the branch. And earlier we've seen again and again, it's pointed out that Joshua is symbolic of another man to come. Here it seems to be clearer. 
Joshua receives this crown, receives this promise of this priest king, this great ruler who nevertheless stands alongside his people and pleads on their behalf with God. But Joshua is not that one. This uh, priest king will be in the future. Actually, the crown is then taken off his head. The crown is given back to those exiles for their safekeeping, and they are to lodge it in the temple of God as if it is there to remind God himself. He has made this promise. It must come true. Verse 14. The crown will be given to Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. One day, says Zechariah, exiles will come from far away and be combined with these exiles. And a true temple of God will be built. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord, verse 15. On that day, the truth of Zechariah's great set of visions will become self-evident. You will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you, says Zechariah. That day has come. That day is today. That day is the day when we can see how all these visions come to completion because we have seen Jesus Christ. We have seen the great priest king. We have seen the one who, in fact left the very presence of God to come and be alongside us, to die on the cross for us. The one who was raised from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father and rules over all things, over all history, over all people, over all powers, over all creation for all eternity. He is the greatest priest who could ever be because he was God-made man, standing with us, sacrificing himself for us. He is the greatest priest, uh, king who could ever be because he is risen and exalted and seated in heaven with the Father. That gospel that Zechariah has described can only come true because of Jesus, the priest king, our saviour. That is why, you see, it is central. It is the essence of Christianity that we come to Jesus and ask his forgiveness. Sadly, we look forward to the day when Jesus will come. The great warrior riding on a white horse, says Revelation, to defeat all the powers of evil set up against him. And then there will be a new Jerusalem, a new heaven and a new earth. I just want to say something very simple to you.
how could you possibly ignore that? How could you possibly allow that great message, those great truths, to be anything but absolutely central in your life? I think, you see, the only way that we can is by ignoring reality. Is by trivializing the message, trivializing the realities of what's going on in this world. Just as Sally Phillips did for years. She says she was convinced that all Christians wore bad clothes, hadn't thought things through, and uh, uh, were, were, were thoroughly arrogant. Well, that may be true of individual Christians. Judy certainly is convinced that um, I was delic uh, um, dedicated to sartorial inelegance until she met me. But that's not the nature of the message, is it? The message is the most profound, most clear, most real analysis of this world that ever could have been told us. It's the way the world is. It's the way the world will be. It's reality. It's the only hope we ever could have. How could we ignore such a great salvation? How could we let it dwell on the edge of our life? It's the center. It's life itself. It's the gospel. Let's pray. Perhaps for you, you need to say something you've never said to God before. Or perhaps have said long ago, but it's drifted out of your life. Lord, be the center of my life. Lord, forgive me. Lord, assure me of heaven. Our loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this good news. We pray, Lord, that this good news would captivate our hearts, rule our lives, season our speech fill us with joy 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.